This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everybody. My name is Harry Hilling. I'm the executive director here at the Birch Aquarium at Scripps. I'd like to welcome you all to the um, Perspectives on Ocean Science series. Tonight, uh, Dr. Dick Norris is a professor of paleobiology at Scripps Institution of Oceanography here at University of California, San Diego. His research focuses on the evolution of life in the oceans, with particular emphasis on the mechanisms of extinction and speciation of plankton and the processes of assembly of marine ecosystems. His research also focuses on climate history, evolutionary dynamics during past intervals of extremely warm periods in the Cretaceous, Paleogene, Neogene as analogs for modern global climate change. Also works on recent fossil records of reefs and coastal environments to evaluate the impact of human activities on marine and terrestrial ecosystems. We had another young student who was with us at an earlier event with Dr. Norris, um, also here on her own. I think Yuka is here somewhere. I can't see you because of the light. But Yuka said, Dr. Norris, what sort of background do you need in order to become a famous paleontologist? So I'm going to tell all of you now what his background is. So um, Dr. Norris holds a bachelor's in earth sciences from the University of California, Santa Cruz, a master's in geosciences from the University of Arizona, and a PhD in earth and planetary science sciences from Harvard University. He's been a forminifera paleontologist and ch- or chief scientist on six esp- expeditions of the ocean drilling program. He's currently curator of the marine geological collections here at Scripps. He acts as academic chair for the Scripps Masters of Advanced Study Program in Marine Biodiversity and Conservation. He's on the leadership of the Scripps Center for Marine Biodiversity and Conservation, academic director of the Science Support Office for the International Ocean Discovery Program, and edited or written 115 scientific articles and seven books. So, tonight I'd like you all to give a warm welcome to Dr. Dick Norris for his talk entitled, Exploring the Earth Under the Sea. Man, it sounds like I must have actually done something in my career. You know, it's kind of funny. You get, you know, relatively aged in this whole process, and suddenly all this stuff sort of accumulates. It didn't seem particularly that significant when you were doing it. Um, Okay, so I'm going to tell you today about a a, a deep love of mine, and that is about the nature of scientific drilling of the deep ocean. Uh, This is an activity, as you'll see, that's been going on for a lot longer than I've been uh, in science, Um, but I have really built my career, I think, and had just a fantastic time doing it, around the, the whole business of trying to understand the history of the oceans by drilling into the sea floor. Uh, and so I'm going to give you a perspective on kind of where this field has come from, how you know, our, our sort of understanding of how the ocean works um, has developed over time. And this is both a technical thing as well as a scientific thing. So there's a lot of technical innovation that had to come along to make all this stuff work. Um, so the whole story for me begins with this, okay? That, that's my father there. He was a graduate student here at Scripps back in the 1950s. And my parents actually met just down the hall from my, 
my uh, present office, as it turns out. <clears throat> but, but anyway, he was, uh, before he finished his PhD, he became the curator of, uh, the, of what was then a brand new oceanarium uh, called Marine Land of the Pacific up in L.A. And later he was one of the three founders of SeaWorld uh, here to talk about, you know, we ought to do this kind of thing in San Diego too. But anyway, the point about that slide is that um, you know, back in the 50s and the 60s, I don't know, I, many of you are my generation, you know, there is that, this sort of, uh, there was a love affair, I think, with the ocean. And we didn't really understand the ocean very well, but, you know, we had Flipper on TV. You know, there's my dad feeding a dolphin, for God's sakes. Uh, and then I grew up on books like that. That's uh, Pagoo about, you know, this poor little hermit crab uh, through its whole life cycle. You know, in this case, threatened with death uh, by a octopus. But the whole point being, you know, that there was all this love and interest in the nature of the ocean, but really very little understanding. Um, now, the story goes back a little farther when we think about how we first started to try to plumb the ocean. And this is a picture, actually two pictures from Summerland, up just south of uh, Santa Barbara, where the first oil exploration, of course, tapped out all the on-land resources. And then the thing to do was to build these long piers, you know, and put derricks on the end of them to be able to sample uh, the ocean. Um, and that only gets you so far, because you can only be build a pier just so far out in the Pacific before it gets too deep uh, to make that work. Um, so uh, in the post-war years, okay, after World War II, there was a move towards ocean drilling. Uh, and it started off with barges like this one in the Mississippi Delta, um, where they put a drilling derrick on top of the barge that could anchor the barge in maybe 20 feet of water or something like that. It was back in the bayous. You know, there's no currents back there. There's no wind to speak of. Uh, and so fairly easy to drill into the ocean floor. But the problem really comes up when you face the deep ocean. So the deep ocean, we're talking five kilometers of water, you know, a couple of miles of water uh, between you and the bottom of the ocean that you're trying to sample. How do you do that? And so at least part of this story tonight is that question of how we actually did that. Now, also back in the 1950s was the beginning of, of trying to actually map the deep ocean for the first time. And one of the really um, Herculean efforts was done by Marie Tharp uh, and uh, Bruce Heason. Um, they were both at Lamont Doherty Oceanographic Institution on the East Coast, uh, just north of, um, of um, New York. Um, and Bruce was a geophysicist. So they had collected from ship tracks. Okay, The ships are sailing along. They're pinging the bottom of the ocean ocean, getting a depth sounder, um, and Bruce would convert this, the time that it would take the sound to get to the bottom of the ocean and back to the ship, that's called two-way travel time, he'd convert that to depth, so you know how, what the depth of the ocean is to various features, and then Marie was a, a spectacular person about being able to assemble all these depth profiles of the bottom of the ocean into maps like the one you see in front of you. Um, and this, actually, that full global map was only produced in 1977. <laughs> but they started off with the North Atlantic and revealed this, this unexplored world down there that had this big, massive mountain range down the middle of it called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, of all things, had been discovered in 19, or excuse me, 1875 by the Challenger Expedition, but not a detailed map like what uh, Tharp put together with uh, Bruce Heason. 
So anyway, this revealed that the oceans were not the same thing as land. And you may know, you know, that back in the 1930s, Alfred Wegener uh, described um, continental drift. And this was based on the, on the observation that, um, that here the coast of South America could fit potentially right there uh, in the armpit of Africa. Uh, and so the notion was that maybe these continents had once been together, and uh, Wegener produced a lot of data to show that that was probably true, and that subsequently they had drifted apart. But American geophysicists said, nope, no way. You know, the, the ocean floor is far too strong material for the continents to literally plow through it. And so U.S. Uh, geophysicists largely rejected uh, the theory of uh, continental drift, really up until the 1950s when Marine Tharp uh, started to produce her maps. Um, and so, and you can see that this is kind of striking. We've got this sort of, you know, it's like a, like the, the sewing on a, on a softball or something like that. Uh, this mid-Atlantic ridge is neatly between these major continental areas. And so uh, Tharp and others suggested that perhaps that, that the continents had literally pulled apart, leaving the mid-Atlantic ridge in between. And this was the beginnings of the theory of plate tectonics, uh, the idea that the surface uh, of Earth is broken into a series of large, relatively rigid plates that move around on the surface. And one critical component of this is here's the, the what could be the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, okay, this marine, um, submarine uh, mountain range. And in plate tectonic theory, this is the place where new ocean floor is being created. Uh, and then it is moving this way and moving that way away from this zone of formation. So a couple of key points about that. If that's true, then first of all, we ought to find uh, rocks here that are younger here than they are there or than they are there, okay? And I'll show you that that was later proven. The other thing is that these rocks are very different from continental rocks. Um, in previous sort of theorizing about how Earth worked, it was thought the ocean floor might be very, very old, similar to the billion-year-old you know, uh, uh, crust of the continents. And in that case, you'd expect the ocean basin to be filled full of sediment that you know, had been derived from land at some point, and that the ocean floor would be very old. Um, and so another test of plate tectonics was to discover if that was true, you know, are the ocean, is the ocean floor notably older uh, than the continents? And that was something to, to yet be discovered. <clears throat> All right. So here at Scripps, we had, and sadly have lost now, uh, Walter Monk, uh, who, in his house just down the way, you know, proposed with Harry Hess, shown here, you know, to the idea that something audacious that could be done by Scripps, uh, you know, we, want, we don't want to do ordinary science. We want to do something that's extraordinary. And, and Walter was really good at thinking like that. Uh, and I think Harry Hess was too. And they proposed to NSF... Uh, National Science Foundation funding all this stuff, that a really audacious thing to do would be to drill through the ocean floor to try to figure out how old it was, whether the theory of plate tectonics was right, um, and drill right down to this acoustic reflector called the MOHO, 
Okay. Uh, the Mohorvijic uh, discontinuity. I think I spelled. I said that right. Um, anyway, it, this is an acoustic horizon. It's recognized by bouncing sound waves, you know, through the crust of the Earth and recovering the signal. And you see two things here. There's a surficial layer. You see that there's. This has been called layer two. Layer one is the surface from the bottom of the ocean down uh, to the top of layer two. And then at some depth below that, we have the Moho. And the Moho worldwide is about six kilometers down below the, the sea floor. Um, by the way, this is a section off of Japan. That's Hokkaido there, Honshu here, the Japan Trench right there. Anyway, here's Harry Hess, and he says, well, I think the moho is the boundary between the crust of the earth, which is thicker under the continents than it is under the oceans, and the mantle. Uh, And so if we drilled through that, we would be able to figure out if that was really true. That would be a very profound discovery um, of the nature of how our planet works. And so they devised, this is a, it says cuss up here, that is not an epithet, okay, that is a ship that was designed to go out and, and plumb the depths of the ocean uh, in what they called Project Mohol. <clears throat> All right, so here is the key point. Uh, this is the thickness of the crust of the Earth based upon lots of those acoustic profiles. And you can see that the continents are pretty thick, you know, 40, 50 kilometers of rock between them and the Mohol, the surface in the Mohol. But the ocean is quite uniform. It's this kind of dark blue color. It's basically about five, six kilometers thick of material. So if you want to drill to the Mohol, you do it in the ocean. You do not do this. You know, you have to drill through 50 kilometers of terrestrial rock. The Russians tried that, by the way, and they didn't actually get that far. Um, so, okay, so this enter CUS1. <laughs> uh, CUS uh, stands, I can't remember what the acronym is, but it's an acronym for a commercial a group of, of uh, companies that own this vessel. And this, like everything post-war, was a converted U.S. Navy ship. <laughs> um, and I think a landing craft or something like that. But anyway, it had, they put this big drilling derrick in the middle of it uh, and then drove this thing off of, um, off of uh, southern Baja. California uh, to drill the Moho. Okay, now here is the technical innovation part. Uh, Without this, my career would be dead, okay? There was three parts. This was to design something called dynamic positioning because the problem is if you're sitting in water that is a couple of kilometers deep, Forget anchoring the ship, okay? If you're going to drill, uh, sort of dangle this big metal drill string down below the ship and drill into the ocean floor, just conventional anchors are not going to do the trick because the anchor chains bend and stuff like that. Um, And so this involved using giant motors, uh, these big outdoor uh, or out, outboard motors uh, called thrusters, um, and these were very nice because they could swivel and they could pr- put their propulsion in almost any direction that the pilot might want. And they were controlled by a pilot, and the pilot had a joystick. And the joystick could be used to control all the motors at once so that if the ship, if let's say the drill string is here and the ship is drifting this way, the thrusters could be oriented to push the ship back over the drill site um, and keep the, position, the ship dynamically positioned over the point where you're trying to drill into the ocean floor. 
<clears throat> now, the other problem was you're in deep water. You're out of sight of land. How do you know where the, where the hole is in the bottom of the ocean? You're connected to it by a pipe that's a couple of kilometers long, but you actually don't know if you're over the drill string or not. And so a key point was to develop these buoy systems, and the buoys were, had sonar beacons that would go ping, 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 like that. But they also had reflective uh, stuff on top of them that could be picked up by radar. So the dynamic positioning pilot here is looking at the ra radar scope, and the ship right here with its drill string is surrounded by a series of these buoys, enough of them so that if they kind of drift off, they, the ship can still maintain its position in the middle of this network of sonar uh, systems. And when I got into the field, okay, in 19, uh, basically 1990, when I finished my PhD, <clears throat> we were still using a system kind of like this, okay, with a pinger on the bottom of the ocean next to the drill site, and the ship would pick up that ping and try to locate itself by dynamic positioning directly over the drill string. And nowadays, this is all done by GPS, okay? We no, no longer use pingers or buoys or anything like that. Okay, so this was big. Okay, the fact that this was a test, basically, of whether dynamic positioning would work in really deep ocean uh, water. All right, now this was an all-scripts affair. Okay, this is proposed by Scripps scientists. It involved... Uh, this is uh, Bill Riedel, who is actually my predecessor as, uh, as um, the curator of the geological collections at Scripps. He was a radiolarian specialist, and here he is looking at some rocks that were brought up to the surface by the CUS-1, and he's handing it off to, to, um, to Roger Ravel here, okay, the director of Scripps, and I think Walter Monk was on the ship too, okay? And this was a big deal, right? They got this telegram from John F. Kennedy uh, saying, you know, way to go, boys. You, you did you know, something that we thought was impossible. Um, and in a way, that was totally true. This shouldn't have worked, but it did. <clears throat> All right. So they had the good fortune uh, of having John Steinbeck on the boat. Um, and, uh, and John, of course, he had written this log of the Sea of Cortez and so forth. You know, very nautical kind of guy. And I'm going to read a couple of these quotes. So this, these are some quotes from an article that uh, Steinbeck wrote in Life magazine uh, in 1961, shortly after the expedition. And he says, this is the opening move in a long-term plan of exploration of the unknown two-thirds of our planet that lies under the sea. We know less about this area than we do about the moon. And sadly, that is still true. <laughs> uh, 1961. And then he goes on and he says, um, he says, the scientists are guarding the core like tigers. Okay, here's the, whoop, uh, the core was in the previous picture, right? This is totally true. This is exactly the way it works, right? He says, we have broken drilling records every day, but now we have broken through the second layer. I'll tell you about that in just a moment. Uh, which nobody has ever seen before. Um, I asked for a piece and got a scowling refusal, so I stole a small piece. <laughs> and then the damn chief scientist gave me a piece secretly. Made me feel terrible. I had to sneak in and replace the piece I had stolen. <laughs> okay, this happened to me. <laughs> It happened to me with this core, okay? 
so this is a core. Actually, I actually have a replica of it right here on the front table. Um, this is the, the debris that was blown out of the giant impact crater that bumped off the dinosaurs. Uh, and I, when I was on my first expedition, or actually second expedition, we recovered this core, which now resides in the Smithsonian um, uh, Museum in the Dinosaur Hall, okay, as a evidence of the extinction of the dinosaurs. Um, and the story is that the, on a previous cruise, um, one of the chief scientists had, had removed from public display on the ship a piece of cord and had stuck it in a closet. And the curator, who was in charge of all these things, said, no, 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 you're not allowed to do that, you know. Uh, and she was very suspicious of me. We'd come up with this barn burner of a core. She thought, for sure, that Norris, he's going to swipe the core. <laughs> And this got back to me, and so we made a little joke on her, okay? We, uh, we filled up one of these uh, plastic liners with ice cream, and the, the uh, galley made a, a passable, okay, replica uh, of the core out of ice cream, and we hid it in a closet. <laughs> and then we let it be known, I, I think I had to be very sheepish for a while, you know, that, oh, yes, I had actually stolen the core, and, and I brought her to the, to the closet, and there was the ice cream core. The actual real one was right where it should have been, okay, on the racks. <laughs> uh, anyway, that was good fun. But anyway, so I could fully appreciate what Steinbeck had to say. <laughs> All right, so, so here is a little more of a quote, okay? It says, um, the, uh, the men who have dreamed this plan and fought it through um, have tight smiles of deepest satisfaction. I think they can go to sleep now. They have opened the way to the exploration and eventual development of the greatest parts of our home planet. I feel a joy like a bright light at having been there to see. Um, my little piece of the second uh, layer is more precious to me than any jewel could be. Now, I have to tell you that Steinbeck's second layer is not a very beautiful rock because I have a piece of it right here, which I did not steal, by the way. Uh, this came out of the geological collections, and, um, and this was a very significant rock because this proved that the ocean floor was geologically young. Okay, The Cus-1 was drilling in sediments that were about 20, well, 15 to 20 million years old, Turns out that's how old the ocean floor is, and this is volcanic rock that is geologically young. No old ocean crust down there. Plate tectonics, yay, okay? We actually probably proved it, okay, with this rock right there. Um, and I feel so proud. I, I feel like, you know, Steinbeck, it's like, it's great to clutch this stuff. Uh, I don't actually need it on my mantelpiece, however. Um, Okay, anyway, so that was, the, that was really a momentous thing that they did, okay? They proved that dynamic positioning worked. They proved that the ocean floor was very young and therefore not the old ages that people had thought. <clears throat> um, now, it turns out that Project Mohol didn't die. Instead, NSF invested in 1961 dollars, I forget, something like 40 million bucks or something. Maybe Charlie knows better than me. But it was a lot of money, okay? And they came up, I think that one of the big products was this model, 
which somebody dumped in our collection at some point. Um, this is Alex Hangster, who is my collections manager. Uh, and this was a model for the ship that was actually going to drill the mohole, okay, that would be big enough and stable enough to be able to drill six, mile, or six kilometers uh, through ocean crust. But can't, uh, Congress canceled this. They said, no, way too expensive. And that was, you know, back in the 60s. And dang it, we still keep on trying to go after the mohole, as you'll see, um, and so far have not fully been successful. All right. Now, it turns out that there are places you can see the mohole on land. And it's like, why do you bother drilling in the ocean if you already got it on land? Um, and so this is the coast of Oman. These are uh, mountain ranges. Oman, of course, is in the Persian Gulf. And there you have a sequence of lavas uh, similar to layer two right up here. Um, you have the sheeted dikes, which are volcanic feeder vents. And then there's a bunch of rocks called gabbros. And the gabbros are essentially the magma chambers that were feeding uh, magma up to the surface of the ocean crust. And these are basically sections of the ocean crust that have now been lifted up on land. The moho consists enough, sure enough, you know, of mantle rocks called peridotites uh, that are in contact with these layered gabbros. And this has been the, the classic model for what the, the, the crust of the ocean looks like. Now, our very own Margaret Linen, right there, as a young woman, okay, uh, she and Dave Ray, the other co-chief, uh, were, were um, uh, graduate students together. <laughs> and, uh, and they later became a, a chief scientist on one of these expeditions. Uh, and they both are wearing these shirts. I am the real chief scientist. <laughs> because as, Mar as uh, Margaret pointed out to me just a couple days ago, she says, you know, we were actually co-chief scientists. There was none of this business about, you know, he's more important than me or vice versa. Um, and so I think that's kind of grand. But in any case, they went out to a place called Hole 504B, uh, which was an attempt, a later attempt, to drill to the Mohole, and sadly unsuccessful. Um, but they had a good time doing it. Um, now, it turns out that the moho is probably not the same thing everywhere in the oceans. These are a variety of crustal sections that have been proposed uh, from uh, different places in the oceans. So this is very Oman-like here in the Pacific Ocean with mantle rocks below uh, the layered gabbros, which are the, the old uh, magma chambers. But there are places like in the Arctic where the ocean floor is forming so slowly that you have mantle rocks right at the surface. And yet there's still a moho down there, okay? Uh, there's still this acoustic reflector which says, oh, you know, well, okay, it can't be the mantle. We already got the mantle at the surface. Um, and so this is a very interesting problem, yet still unresolved. This is a 2019 paper that one of my colleagues gave me just this afternoon, and it shows the crustal rocks here, and then the dotted line is the moho. You can see that it's not flat, right? Um, this is up in the North Atlantic, uh, and but it's pretty consistently relatively deep, you know, five or six kilometers deep. Uh, and I suspect, I, I, I queried Jeff Gee, my colleague, about this, who gave me the paper, you know, well, what exactly is the moho? And we agreed that in some cases it's this mineralogical transformation that I just talked about. But I think another plausible idea is that it's essentially the depth of the ocean. 
Okay. The ocean doesn't stop at the seafloor, but water is circulated through the crust, um, altering the rocks into different compositions than they were when they originally erupted uh, or formed. Um, and so it could be that this whole sequence of rocks here is essentially permeated by ocean water. Um, and that will turn out to be la important later on at the very end of this talk when I talk about what's called the deep biosphere, okay, this, the, the realm of life that extends deep into the ocean crust. Can't really do that if there's no water, but it looks like there's probably water throughout the whole upper couple of kilometers at least, okay, of the ocean floor. <clears throat> now, the spark of drilling to the Moho has not died, uh, and my Japanese colleagues put together this map. Uh, of proposals of places to go to actually drill to the Moho in the future. Uh, and one of them is this site off of Mexico, which happens to be where the 1961 Cus-1 drilled, you know, towards the Moho. Uh, so who knows, you know, watch this space. Eventually, we'll probably be successful about this. Okay, now to turn course a little bit into my realm of science, um, and that is to go after the sediments. So Harry Hess pointed out, I, mentioned, I showed him a picture of him later on, it would be vastly cheaper just to drill the sediment column, the stuff that's sitting on top of layer two. And that sediment column has all this interesting history. It's got all the dust and the pollen and the, the soot from fires and so forth that gets blown off from land out to sea and accumulates in uh, marine sediments. And it also has this detailed history of the history of our planet. Um, and so drilling the sediment is perhaps a lot cheaper thing to do to understand a lot about Earth history uh, than, to, uh, than to drill to the Moho. And this was started off by a project called Long Course. This was Cesar Emiliani, uh, who is a, a, just a giant of paleo-oceanography, the study of ancient oceans. And he got, again, another converted Navy vessel. This is a sub-chaser um, uh, that is, was, called, was renamed the Submarix. Uh, and this project of long cores where they collected sediment cores for 100,000 bucks. That was a lot of money back in the 1960s, but it was cheap compared to Moho. Okay? Uh, and it was this fantastic sediment record that showed that we could actually core uh, the deep ocean and get a nice historical record of the deep ocean. And that was done off of a little drilling rig on the side of the ship back there. Now, that was successful enough that NSF invested in a, a true deep ocean drilling rig, and in this case, it was the Glomar Challenger. And some of you may know the story of its sister ship, the Glomar Explorer, which was a spy ship, okay, which was built basically to recover pieces of a Soviet submarine off the bottom of the ocean. But the Glomar Challenger was straight-laced science, uh, and it, again, a big drilling rig in the middle of it, and this really launched uh, deep ocean drilling. And here's one example. This is leg three. Each a leg, by the way, is, is cruised from port to port, okay, doing science in between. And in this case, the ports were Dakar here in Senegal and Rio de Janeiro in Brazil. 
Um, and the chief scientists were Art Maxwell, who, of all things, had been on the CUS-1 uh, when it drilled layer two, uh, and then Dick von Herzen back here, who I met when I first was a green scientist at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and there's the great man, you know, in front of me. And I suppose I must look like the great man to young people nowadays, but it's like, you know, you get old and these sorts of things happen. <laughs> uh, and I'm not that old yet, I don't think. I can be crusty, but not that old. Um, anyway, the idea of this expedition was that they drilled a series of sites. Here's the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and you may remember the hypothesis was that the center of the Mid-Atlantic Ridge should be very young rock, and as we go away from the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, it should get older. And so here is the famous plot. This is distance from the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Zero distance is on the ridge, and this is geologic age of the sea floor. And it's a beautiful fit, okay, like perfect Perfect, okay, to, to demonstrate that plate tectonics is a real thing. The ocean floor is being created at these mid-Atlantic ridges and is spreading apart, and that's the driving mechanism behind plate tectonics. Um, and we figured that out in 1970, okay? That was right in the core of this technological and, and theoretical revolution. Okay, for us sediment types, the really big technical evolution was this, okay, the development of piston coring. And I brought in pieces for you. So this little puppy here is the head of a piston core, um, and you can see it's hollow, and it has this piece of pipe in here that would collect the sediment. Uh, and the idea is that this thing is like a gigantic, really gigantic nail gun, Okay, nail guns work under hydraulic uh, or under um, air pressure. You go, you pull the trigger, and the nail goes kapow, okay, into the sediment or into the rock or the, excuse me, the building, right? In this case, the nail gun is nine and a half meters long, so the pipe goes basically to the doorway over there, and that whole thing is blasted into the sediment like that, okay? It's just instantaneous, just took. And you can see the contrast between these things. These are two cores that were collected in the um, Mediterranean, which has beautiful layered sediments, as you can see. Um, and they are from the same locality, collected on different expeditions. This is leg 13. This is leg 160. Um, this one was collected with what's called rotary technology. So you have a rotary bit like this that has little teeth on it, and this thing is spun, okay, to drill into the sediment. But if the sediment is soft, it just swirls that stuff around like toothpaste. Uh, and the predictable result is that. <laughs> Not pretty, okay? Some of these layers, you can kind of make out, there's a brown layer here. It's been smeared, another brown smeared layer. But this is a piston cord record where all the individual layers are very well represented. And this transformed, okay, piston coring technology was developed here at Scripps, uh, right down in the machine shop, and I got to talk to the guy who built that thing, and I was like, yes, another piece of history has come together. Um, but the key thing about it is that it gave us history, okay? It gave us essentially a time machine into the past where we could un un essentially reveal the whole history of the oceans in glorious detail. And uh, the successor to the Glomar Challenger is this vessel, the Joides Resolution, which I've sailed on, I think, at least six times. My wife could probably tell me for sure uh, about that, because <laughs> they're two months at sea at a, at a crack. 
Um, but the Joides resolution, again, big drilling derrick. These are scientific labs up in here and so forth. And just a fantastic example of a time machine. And so here is one of the revealing things of the time machine. Um, this is a record of Earth history, the last 115 million years of Earth history, assembled from those kinds of cores collected with piston coring. And so here's today. There's 115 million years ago. Um, and then this is a record of what's called oxygen isotopes, which you can now forget about. Okay, But the key point about it is that we can collect data from a whole lot of these cores of different geologic ages, paste them all together okay, into a continuous record, and we get this lovely climatological history of Earth. So back here, for example, in 195, 100 million years ago, we have the greenhouse world. And these data reveal very warm environmental conditions on Earth, very wet environmental conditions on Earth, too, because a warm Earth stores a lot more uh, moisture in the atmosphere than a cooler Earth does. Um, and so that's the classic greenhouse right there. That's when the dinosaurs were tromping around. They must have been sweating like pigs, okay? Uh, it's like worse than Houston in the middle of summer. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's the dinosaur period, okay? Then we come up to today, up here, and we're in the ice house world, okay, where we have big polar ice sheets, uh, it's cold, it's dry by comparison. Uh, dry means that you end up also with more grasslands, for example, which is kind of an arid biome on land. Um, whereas back here in the greenhouse world, we had forests on most of the continents, probably rainforest in many cases. And so this whole time machine record that we have, it reveals this glorious nature of our past world. You know, what has our planet been like and when did it get that way? Um, and a couple of revealing things, okay? One is that um, the greenhouse world continues into here somewhere around 40, 50 million years ago. And the whales and the horses and the primates and the penguins even, okay, all evolved back in this time of a much warmer uh, planet than today. The big baleen whales, on the other hand, they're geologic newcomers, okay? They've only been around for the last couple million years. Um, and, uh, and very notably enough, you know, we can time exactly when the polar ice sheets come in. That's just about exactly 34 million years ago. We would not know that if it was not for ocean drilling. We wouldn't know really a lot of this would be vague. You'd have to put on your dark kind of smoky glasses and you get this vague idea of what the earth has been like based upon looking on land. But in the ocean, it's like putting on magnifiers and there it is in crystal clarity, okay, the nature of our past planet. And for me, as an as a earth historian, this is like I feel like Steinbeck, definitely, you know, that bright light thing comes about from having this historical record of what the past planet has been like. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example. Um, this period right here is called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum, and it's strikingly enough, okay, a relatively warm period in Earth history, about 55 million years ago. We have the first whales and horses appearing about this time. There's, interestingly enough, what I call the reef gap. Um, big coral reefs disappear at this time. Like, why is that? Um, but in any case, that's the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum there. And this is what it looks like in a sediment record. Okay? Like, really? 
That's significant. It's this little little brown smear, okay, in the core. And um, here, okay, is the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. Uh, and this represents about 100 and 150,000 years of record from there up into about in here or so. Uh, and this represents potentially our future, which is why this is so significant, because this is a very globally warm period of time that happened quite quickly, geologically speaking. And in many respects, our burning of fossil fuels is replicating this. The reason why the sediment is this lovely chocolate brown is because all of the calcium carbonate has been dissolved. And that's something that happens with ocean acidification, which is something that we can already measure uh, in the modern oceans, although not as severe as this. Um, so it's interesting to think about a potential geologic analog you know, of, uh, if in the geologic past. So here is a little bit of data. Sorry, I have graphs. We, we scientists do a lot of graph kind of stuff. Okay. Um, this is geologic time over here. These are 100,000-year increments. The Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum is about 100,000 years long. And I want to point out the temperature scale up here. These are oceanic records from this sediment core uh, that happened to be off of Antarctica when it was, uh, was collected. So this is an Antarctic ocean record. Um, and you see the blue dots here are the temperature of the deep sea. And the deep sea abruptly warms okay, by something on the order of, of 5 to 6 degrees centigrade. That's a lot. Okay? It's warming up very quickly, too, over the span here of probably only a couple thousand years. Uh, it keeps on my colleagues. At one point, they said, oh, that's 20,000 years to get that warm. Then it was, oh, oh it's 10,000 years to get that warm. And then it's like, ah, maybe 5,000 years to get that warm. And now it's starting to look very much like, you know, just a few thousand years, something com broadly comparable uh, to modern global change. The red line is the surface ocean, which also warms uh, precipitously uh, during the Paleocene-Eocene thermal maximum. And the key point about this is that not only does it get hot, but it stays hot for a long time. Okay? You have measurably much warmer temperatures for something on the order of 100,000 years. And one of my graduate students, Sandy Kirtland-Turner, who's now a, a professor at UC Riverside, she has modeled this event, and by gum, it's the same okay, for the future Earth, that if we really get going with burning fossil fuels, we'll do this. Uh, and do we really want to live with globally warm conditions for 100,000 years? Hmm, you know, not me. Um, well, I'll do something about that. Um, one of the things that happens, okay, we found that record in the deep sea, and nobody really had thought very much about the Paleocene-Eocene as being anything very significant. But when that record turned up, that reoriented everyone's thinking to go and look in other places on the planet, like in shallow water on land as well, to see what was going on in a much warmer earth, right? And one of the things that they did was looking at coral reefs, and so here is the late Paleocene with coral reefs all throughout the tropics. And then here's the early Eocene, okay, right after the PETM. And the, they still have these banks of carbonates, but they're made out of foraminifera, okay? What the hell is a foram? Well, they're not corals, okay? So there's a classic coral reef, okay? 
Um, but these things are the foraminifera, okay? They look like little discs, like, and in fact, they're called pneumulites because they look like uh, pneumonistics, you know, the study of money, uh, and so they look like coins. They're beautiful things, okay, in cross-sections, but they ain't corals. <laughs> um, and it really looks like the classic coral reefs really suffered uh, during the greenhouse warming of the Paleocene-Eocene. Um, Here's a story on land now. This is a former graduate student of mine, Santo Baines, uh, from Oxford University. And he's standing in front of fossil soils here. This is in Wyoming, by the way, out in the badlands of Wyoming. Fantastic place to work and camp, okay? But anyway, these soils are from rainforest. Uh, so Wyoming is rainforest. Imagine that. And in amongst the rainforest were these little guys. Um, this is Hyracotherium, or otherwise known as uh, Eohippus. And I brought in a little model. Here is my version of Hyracotherium. Isn't he a cute little devil? You know, uh, This was made for one of my cruises, actually. We made little videos of Eocene animals you know, running around the drill ship. <laughs> but this turns out to be pretty accurate. Uh, so because on Hyracotherium here, the outline is a house cat. Uh, so these are little guys, okay? And why do you want to be a little horse? This is the very first horse that turns up in the record. They're not, you know, they're not, uh, um, you know, uh, whatever it is, the Lone Ranger's steed kind of thing. These are little guys. And um, I think that a decent analog uh, to these things is a modern animal called the agoutis uh, that are a kind of rodent, as it turns out, but a rather big one. Um, and my wife, Teresa, and I have admired these guys in Panama, in the, in the jungles of Panama, and so here's an agouti running around, about that size, okay? And you turn out, it helps to be a little animal running around in the understory of the, of the rainforest. And so the big horses, they come on later on when the earth cools off uh, and the glaciers start to develop on the poles and the grasslands expand, and it pays to be a big animal. But these guys, okay, were part of this globally warm episode of the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. All right, so that's a little story from my, my study. I've done a lot of work on the PETM over my career. But um, I'll veer into a couple of other things to give you a better sense of how scientific ocean drilling has worked. And it turns out the Japanese uh, have been in a consortium with the U.S. for quite a long time in scientific ocean drilling, and they invested in building a gigantic drill ship called the Chikyu. Uh, it was called for a while Godzilla Maru. <laughs> uh, it's so big, okay. But the formal name is the Chikyu, uh, also a big drilling platform. And uh, the Chikyu was very instrumental in a story I'll tell now, which was the study of the uh, great Tohoku earthquake uh, that just decimated northern uh, Honshu. Uh, Teresa and I were on sabbatical in Sendai, and it was absolutely heartbreaking to see the effects of the tsunami even several years later that was kicked up by this uh, massive earthquake. And you see the effects. Here's the tsunami developing. The tsunami dumped ships on top of buildings. You know, this was very uh, big news. 
<clears throat> and so the drilling program got together to do a project called JFAST, uh, and this was to try to figure out what the source of the earthquake was that had done all this damage. And so this is the coast of, of Honshu here. Sendai is right about in there somewhere. Th this is the area that failed during the Tohoku earthquake, which was a Richter scale 9.1, I think. Okay, that is, for California standards, that's still gigantic. Um, and, um, and so this whole area failed. That was why there was a big tsunami afterwards. Um, and JFAS drilled right here in the toe of this area. You can see this is an acoustic section across this area that shows the, the, the sub um, seafloor depth here. And JFAS drilled right here into what was thought to be the slip plane, okay, where the earthquake was generated for this massive earthquake. And what they found was this. This is very cool. They went out there two years, okay, after the big earthquake and drilled uh, through the fault uh, in the subsurface. And this is what the fault looks like right here. It's just shattered rock, okay? This is a core immediately below that one, good-looking pelagic sediments that have not been really smashed up. But the fault plane is a very tightly constrained, relatively narrow interval of just disastrously destroyed rock. Okay, um, and the striking thing is that rock uh, failed so fast. Okay, it was—it's been likened to being stepping on a banana peel. Okay, and you step on the banana peel, and suddenly it goes whoop—you know, like that. Um, and the—that's because the frictional forces on the fault are very low. Okay, and because the fault is moving so far, it heats up a lot, maybe a couple hundred degrees centigrade, just like that. And so we could capture through drilling the heat signature of that earthquake from two years ago. Uh, and so this is temperature now in degrees centigrade. You see they're pretty low temperatures because it's two years later, right? Um, but they drilled through the crust, and right down here where it's bright red was this stuff, okay? And you can see that there's this, and this is time. So a, a set of temperature profiles were put into the drill hole. They recorded first really cold water because that was the temperature of seawater that would, had invaded the hole. But eventually, the hole was packed off, was sealed off, and eventually you started to see the background temperature of the surrounding rocks. And that's what this is. So this is the thermal anomaly created by the great Tohoku earthquake. Um, and I don't know about you, but I think that's absolutely amazing, okay? It, it suggests, that first of all, that the, the disaster was created by a relatively thin interval of sediment that just failed, like literally like the banana peel thing, uh, and generated enormous amounts of heat, a big displacement of the overlying sediment, and that created the tsunami. Um, so it also technically very difficult to do this kind of thing. So a very impressive technical study as well. All right. So my last little example comes from the deep biosphere. And this is returning uh, here to the Joides resolution again, uh, which I just can't get my eyes off of, by the way. Um, I, when my colleagues go to sea, you start seeing on Facebook and so forth people wistfully saying, oh, I'm going to get to go on another cruise. Two months, you're working 12 hours a day, no weekends, no nothing like that, okay? Why would you be wistful for that? Well, it's because of the Steinbeck story, you know, of this discovery that you're going to make. And it's, 
I, I have to say, there's really nothing like it. Um, but anyway, so the Joides resolution has been out there trying to plumb what's called the deep biosphere. And the biosphere is all this probably mostly microbial communities of bacteria, archaea, fungi, and things like that that live inside rocks, you know, below the sea floor. And here's some examples of them. So this is a, a image of living cells inside of rocks. They don't look like a hell of a lot to me. Okay, I'm not a microbiologist, so I can say that. Um, but anyway, you know, there they are. You can actually find living cells uh, deep inside of what otherwise appears to be solid rock. And then this is what really turns my boat is these things, okay? These are called trace fossils. They are the borings made by, by microorganisms drilling through solid rock. And they're drilling to try to pick up little metal uh, cations, as it turns out, and they get, gain energy uh, by, by chemically reacting those individual metal atoms. <laughs> this is not speedy ecology. <laughs> These organisms are living very slow, and they don't have very much energy to play with, um, but they do some pretty neat things. So they make little tubes like this, for example, with all these little annulations on it. This is a really cool one. Okay, it's a tube with this little thing wrapped around it like a wet spaghetti noodle. Um, and then here's this other one that looks like a cauliflower head, okay, of all these little borings which, where the organism has been drilling through solid volcanic glass trying to pick up these little atoms that it can use as an energy source. Like, this is a, a different planet from ours, okay, but it's right down there at the bottom of the ocean. And the seriously cool thing is this, okay? This was work done by Hubert Stadigal, you know, here at Scripps, uh, who's a volcanologist, and he's played around a lot out in the Australian outback. I think nearly died a couple of times out there uh, to collect this kind of record. But these are more of these little borings, okay? But in this case, they're in volcanic rocks that are 3.46 billion years old, okay? That is some of the earliest fossil record we have of life on Earth, okay? And they are living in the same kind of deep biosphere system that we are plumbing with the Joides Resolution today. Uh, and I find that absolutely astounding. You know, the very earliest life on Earth may well have been living inside of solid rocks. At least some of it was doing that. And leaving these distinctive little traces that we can also observe in the modern ocean. Now, our understanding of the deep biosphere is very rudimentary. Uh, and this is a little map put together by Steve Daunt, one of my colleagues uh, from University of Rhode Island. And this is the global ocean showing different kinds of habitats that would be suitable for different kinds of microbial organisms. And these, the, the different kinds of microbes are defined partly based upon the kind of uh, metabolic system that they use to gain energy. So some of them are sulfate reducers, for example. All the white areas are suitable for sulfate reduction uh, in se sediments. There's oxygen reducers in this dark blue uh, patches, uh, places where there's a lot of oxygen available in subseafloor rocks. And then the light blue is a diverse mixture of other kinds of microbial communities. And it's kind of an interesting thought, you know, trying to map the nature of this really weird ecosystem that we know very little about. And I highly suspect that the map is going to get a whole lot more complicated. We're going to 
understand that this is a very complicated system, and there's a lot of structure to it that we only partially know um, at this time. Now, the reason, in some respects, this is significant is because of this, okay? The search for life on other planets, uh, or in this case, other moons. So NASA, of course, is out there with their Mars landers and stuff like that, but you know, come on, how do you really know what you're after uh, when you put a lander on Mars? Well, you look to Earth, right? And you particularly look to the ocean drilling uh, effort to find actual examples, okay, of what these unusual kinds of communities look like and what kinds of biological signatures they have that you might be able to find um, on other worlds. And so the drilling program has teamed up um, with the... um, with the, the with NASA and the European Science Agency and so forth uh, to do this kind of ground truthing of what might be discovered elsewhere. So here, for example, this is Titan. Titan is the moon of Saturn. Uh, it has methane oceans <laughs> on it. This is land. Uh, these are methane oceans. That's a weird place. Uh, but there, who knows? Maybe there's living critters out there. Um, methane is something that is commonly generated by various groups of microbial organisms. Um, this is Europa, which is a moon of Jupiter, and tidal forces of Jupiter keep the interior of this ice planet liquid. And so it's believed that Europa has a deep ocean underneath the superficial ice uh, cover that has been, you can see, all fractured up and so forth like this. And so there's been dreamy kind of looks in the NASA people and, and actually, since uh, Charlie was a, a NASA administrator at some point, he probably has seen this more times than he might care to. You know, that, that idea that Europa would be the, like the perfect place to go and look for life on another world. Um, but hopefully they'd go with the insight that they'd get, you know, from uh, ocean drilling. <clears throat> all right, so two little, two little codas at the end of all this. We have, so far, not drilled the Moho, okay? That still is a bright light. People are still thinking about that. It's an enormously expensive and technical challenge to do that, Uh, but it would be obviously very revealing about how our planet works to do that that project someday. Um, And my Japanese colleagues particularly are pushing on that one. We have used this time machine, okay, of drilling into ocean sediments to recover the history of the Earth. That has been wildly successful. Um, Archaeology, the study of of much more ancient times in Earth history, is all really fundamentally dependent upon the chronologies, the the timescale that we get uh, from studies of the deep ocean. Um, and this work now on the deep biosphere, just beginning, you know, there's a, there's a universe out there to be discovered on our own planet of something that may well exist on other worlds. Um, so here we are, Roger Revelle, okay? Great periods of oceanography are defined by new kinds of instrumentation. That's so true. You know, when we, when we got dynamic positioning, man, now you could drill in the deep ocean. When we got piston coring, particularly advanced piston coring, now suddenly the time machine is a real thing. Uh, and, and, yeah, absolutely, completely right. Okay. And then we have Margaret Linen, and she says here, you know, the 20th century was the century we began sampling under the ocean as a result of the audacity of Walter Monk and Harry Hess. And I completely second this, too. You know, the fact that 
that science, the best science, is audacious. It's something you are trying to do something brand new. Uh, and I have been fortunate in my career to be part of the drilling program where it seems like every time we go out to sea, it's some... It's, it's totally like Christmas, okay? It is opening packages. And here I am. I'm opening the package that has layer two in it. And it's not a beautiful present, <laughs> okay? But man, is it precious. Uh, and, I, and I have, I just have so much fun. It's been, it's been a great career, and, and it ain't over yet. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.